The Lord be with y'all. What is up, my peoples? Hello, friends. Welcome to and also with y'all podcast from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. I'm the Reverend James D. Franklin III and a co-host of this podcast. And I'm so excited for y'all to hear this episode. Co-host Eliza Brinkley interviews friend and roommate Taylor as she reflects on her mainstream Christianity, spiritual upbringing, and how she is now experiencing faith during quarantine. So without further ado, here is Eliza and Taylor. digital evangelist for the Young Episcopal Adult Hub, or YEAH, which is a program of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina for young adults ages 18 to 40. Welcome to the second episode in and also with y'all's special podcast series, Distancing Diaries. This series focuses on the different experiences of young adults in the diocese um, and outside the diocese during this time of coronavirus. Um, Specifically, the young adults we're featuring in this series are sharing with us how their lives have been changed and challenged by the global pandemic so far, and how they're making sense of those changes and challenges through their faith. I hope you enjoy this episode, and please let other young adults you know who might be interested in checking out this podcast and other awesome resources to download the Yeah app. Just go to the the App Store on any smartphone, and you can search Yeah NC to find us. So today I am joined by my roommate. <laughs> yes, I got my roommate to do this podcast episode. It's fine. Um, <laughs> we haven't really left our home though, so like. Yeah, I feel like people can't be mad at me for this, but yeah. So um, this is Taylor. Taylor is a teacher um, at an alternative high school in. Is it Carborough technically or Chapel Hill? It's technically Chapel Hill. Technically Chapel Hill. Um, But you're moving on to another school in Raleigh this fall. Also alternative. Also an alternative high school in kind of like downtown Raleigh area. Um, So I guess where we'll start off is can you tell me a little bit about your faith and um, specifically like growing up, like what your faith looked like? Yeah, um, so I grew up in church. Um, both sets of grandparents um, like raised my parents in church. So my dad's parents are Lutheran and my mom's parents are Baptist. Um, and so I grew up going to a Baptist church um, and I also went to a Presbyterian school. So I was just like immersed. Like every day was something related to the Lord and to the Bible. Um, So from a young age, I knew about God, the creator of the universe. I knew that he loves me. I knew that he sent his son, Jesus, to die for me. I knew that Jesus 
came to earth and he lived the life that I couldn't live and he died the death that I deserved. Um, and so one night I was seven, I think this was in August of 1999, my little cousin had just been born and he came over and my parents put him in like a little, you know, like a little playpen kind of thing or pop-up, whatever, crib. And so they put him in there and they put him in my room and they were like, okay, that's where Thomas is going to sleep. Like, don't wake him up. And I was like, okay, I definitely won't wake him up. (laughs) And then, like, they told me it's time to go to bed. They're like, just walk in there and, like, lay down and, like, don't wake him up. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely won't wake him up. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not going to do that. And so I walked in and I was just like, oh, my gosh, he's so cute. Like, I just love him and I really just want to play with him. Like, I think I'm just going to wake him up. And so... (laughs) I woke him up, and well, you know, he's a baby, so he starts crying, and I'm like, shh, Thomas, like, you're going to give me a way that I, like, did what I wasn't supposed to do, and so, of course, my dad walks in, and he's like, Taylor, like, we just told you not to, and I'm like, so he took me out, and we went into the living room, and we were talking, and I was really frustrated, like, I don't know why, like, I knew I wasn't supposed to wake him up, and, like, there are things in life that I know I'm not supposed to do, and yet I still do them. And so my dad actually got out his Bible and read Romans 7.15, which is Paul writing to the Romans. And he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And so I think that verse really, that was like perfect timing for what I had just expressed to my dad. And so we actually bent down right there. And my dad was kind of like, you know, in your own strength, you're always going to be doing the things you know that you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be really difficult for you to do the things you know you should because of your fleshly desires. Like this side of heaven, like you were born as a sinner. Mm-hmm. Like you came mm-hmm. out of the womb and you were already a sinner. And so we prayed right there to accept Jesus. And I gave him my life and I said, Lord, I want you, um, you know, God, I want you to be the Lord of my life and I want to follow you. And Um, I know that goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And so that was kind of when I was younger. And I think the gospel, um, I think I understood the gospel as like a Bible story Mm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I knew that Jesus was my savior and I believed that I was going to go to heaven if I died. Um, But I think throughout my life, my view of the gospel has probably shifted a little bit. Okay. Would you say that, like, that moment when that happened, was that sort of, like, the moment you felt like you accepted Jesus, like, in your heart? Was that kind of... Yeah. So would that be, like, in your testimony if you were to yes. give your yeah. testimony? Yeah, so if I okay. were giving my testimony and if someone... I, you know, I think different churches probably say it differently. Yeah, um, like, I was just going to say... Jesus or yeah. Yeah. Um, I give my life to Christ, like whatever that moment and and not you know for everybody it's not like that a specific like I knelt down and I prayed Mm -hmm. yeah um because you know I think a lot of people do that when they're children but then as we grow and we go through experiences like as a seven-year-old I hadn't really gone through anything that shaped like who I am you know who I was at the time so I think like yeah I think just as you get older like you might that thing that you did when you were younger, whatever, you know, you got to your testimony, accepted Christ or gave my life to him, like that kind of morphs as you get older. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think it's interesting because this is kind of where there's like a slight, I think, language difference between like your tradition and mine. So I should say Taylor is not Episcopalian, which is 
really cool because we want to feature people who are not Episcopalian. Um, but you are, can you tell us like where you go to church now? Yeah. And, yeah. Tell yeah, us a little so bit about that. I go to the Summit Church, um, which is located, well, it's really located all over the Triangle. We have 11 different campuses, um, which I go to the one in Raleigh. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a Baptist church for sure. Our pastor, mm-hmm. J.D., is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yep. Um, so it is pretty similar to what I knew growing up. I will say the churches that I went to growing up, while they were Baptist, they were still pretty um, conservative, not very diverse. Everybody looked the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I really have grown to love about the summit is that it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, we, we could be more diverse, but I think that's something that's really on the forefront of our minds is, like, being a church that doesn't all look the same and not everybody's from the same socioeconomic status and mm-hmm. um, not everybody, you know, drives the same cars or has the same background and past. Like, we even have two campuses that meet in the prisons, which I think is just awesome because, like, what a story of, like, restoration and rehabilitation like Jesus came to seek and save the lost and that's all of us whether in prison or not in prison and so yeah that's the church I go to now and the summit for our listeners probably a lot of our listeners have heard about the sun the summit because Mm -hmm. they're just so present in this area um and you guys do a ton of outreach ministry Um, and I did notice, actually, it's funny that you talk about the diversity thing because yeah. my church in Chapel Hill, Chapel of the Cross, which I love, um, is really not that diverse either, like at all. Yeah. Um, like when I went to church with you, you guys probably had more diversity, you yeah. know, you had more minorities than, than we do. So, yeah. um, I think that's cool that that's kind of like a goal for them to keep, yeah. to keep growing in that way. And I think that should be a goal for every perish honestly yeah um so let me I wanted to go back though to when you were talking about that moment when you were younger because I was saying I think there's like a slight like language or almost like even doctrinal difference right um because in more in more mainline traditions I find it rarer that people say that there was like a moment where Mm -hmm. they accepted Jesus in their heart or where they like were saved or something like that. And I feel like I hear more of that kind of story from people more of maybe like a more conservative tradition um, or more of a Baptist evangelical tradition. Um, So I think there's like a slight difference there, but I think that's really cool because in our tradition, there just like, isn't that emphasis on like testimony and like, when did you accept God in your heart? And I think different people would say different things like, oh, well, you know, some people may say, well, there was this defining moment, Mm -hmm. but other people may say, well, you know, it's just kind of been a gradual thing or gradual process, you know, over the years or, or even saying like, I don't know really that I do believe it, but I just keep going back. Um, and that's kind of, how they say that they, you know, have come to the church. Um, So I think that's really interesting that that was kind of your experience. Do you find, like, most of your friends at Summit have had that, like, one moment? Like, when they share their testimony, have they had, like, one moment where they feel like they accepted Christ or were saved or... Yes and no. I mean, I think there are, like, a handful who would say, yes, I remember the day 
Like, I mean, I think it's probably rare. I remember August 2nd, 1999. I, you know, I, I don't think that many people in my small group or even in my church would say, like, yes, there was this one day. Um, mm -hmm. And I think when we talk about salvation and, like, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? That kind of thing, right? That's when we talk about, like, well, you know, this is, this is when I gave my life to Christ. And since then, like... I haven't been living a perfect life. Like, you mm -hmm. don't give your life to Christ and you all of a sudden become perfect. Right. You're like, not all of a sudden, yeah, an angel. My, right. I want my will to align with the mm -hmm. Lord's will. And I want my life to look like a life that, like, I want to be like, oh, I've spent time with Jesus and now I look different. I want people to see that, yeah, I am different because of Jesus and my relationship that I have with him. And I think just like any other relationship, that does grow and get stronger. So I think a lot of people in, even in the summit and, you know, Baptist churches or other churches where you would say like, yes, I believe that you have to pray a sinner's prayer in mm -hmm. order to get to heaven. Right. Um, I still don't think even they would say, yeah, there's like one moment. Right. I think for a lot of my friends, it's like, yes, we remember hearing the gospel and hearing, like, so, like, the Summit doesn't do this, but a lot of Baptist churches do, like, an altar call, mm -hmm. where, like, there's an altar at the front of the church. Yep. And... I've experienced that before. Yes. Like, once, yeah. Yeah. Because so my dad yeah. grew up a Baptist, and he was like, you need to experience an altar call once in your yeah. life. And yes. so I went to a Baptist church <laughs> and did it. But, yeah. 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 And so, you know, we see it happening, and we hear the pastor praying. And so it's kind of this thing, I think, where you know, you just feel the urging of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that may not only happen one, one time. Right. Like that, I think, happens. You know, it might be, I feel the urging of the Holy Spirit calling me to go on a mission trip or mm -hmm. whatever. But that first time for me was like, yes, I want to commit from now. And it's like making a commitment, just like yeah. any commitment that you've made or a vow or like, I want to commit my life to Christ. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, I think it does. And, I mean, I might have misspoken. I think I was also thinking of, like, um, you know that when people say, like, I was saved when, like, yeah. I feel like I was... Is that something that you feel like is in your tradition or not really? Like, yeah. people saying, like, I was saved when this experience happened? Yes. Okay, that's yeah. kind of what I meant more, because we don't... Like, in the Episcopal Church and I think other mainline traditions, we don't tend to talk about that as much. Like, yeah. we may say, like these were some really defining experiences mm. for me in my yeah. life and my faith journey. But like the idea of like you, like God reached out to you and like saved you yeah, yeah, from your sins, like yes. in that moment or that you, I don't know if it's that like you recognized it for the first time or, or what that really means. But yeah. so that is something that yeah. you've heard people talk. Okay. Yeah. And I think yeah. when they talk about it, it's almost like, I was living for myself and my fleshly desires, mm -hmm. and then God came into my life and intervened. And now, even though I'm still a sinner, and I'm still a human, and I still have the same struggles that I did, I now have the power of the Holy Spirit living in me. Mm. And so I went from kind of running away from God and just giving in to all my fleshly desires to running toward God, towards God and asking, like, Lord, please help me to seek you first mm. and seek things of your kingdom first before giving into my, all of my fleshly and selfish human 
innate desires. Yeah. So do you think that moment was maybe like with your little cousin when you, or do you think maybe it was just, maybe it isn't just like one moment that you were saved for you. Like maybe it's possibility that it's been. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that is the moment where, I mean, I truly believe if I had died the next day, I would be going to heaven because I had, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but mm-hmm. have everlasting life. And so that was kind of the moment where I believed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of, like, defining moments in my life, yes, since then there have been many. Yeah. And times where, you know, I doubted the Lord and times where I saw his presence so clearly that it was almost overwhelming. And so... I think that, yes, that was the moment that I was saved. If I had died, I was definitely going to heaven. But I think my relationship with him has gotten stronger, and there have been defining moments. Right, since then. Since then, yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Yeah, I feel like I have a better understanding of that. Um, So now kind of, I feel like this is a good segue into my Mm -hmm. next question, which is, so you're a teacher. Yeah. Why did you choose to be a teacher, and how does that align to your faith journey. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because I grew up and I loved, like, with my brother and sister, I loved doing, like, playing school and, like, I would write a test for them. I'd come up with little activities. We would do, like, a lunchtime and a recess, and I loved it. And I went off to college, and my mom, you know, was kind of like, you'd be a great teacher. And I was like, oh, no, I am not going to be a teacher. And Um, why did you think, like, no, I'm not into that? I'm interested. I don't, I think it may have been like a pride thing. I mm-hmm. think I had always wanted to be an astronaut. So since sixth grade, I had said like, I'm going to be an astronaut. I knew that the journey was going to be difficult. And then teaching almost seemed kind of like easy in my mind. And so yeah. I think it was sort of a pride thing. Like, I don't want to do an easy job. Like I want to do something really difficult. And little did I know that this is one of the most difficult jobs that you can have. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I went off to college, wanted to get into engineering. I thought that was going to be my path to be an astronaut. Um, Started taking a bunch of science classes. Loved most of them except for physics. Hated Mm -hmm. it. Found out that a lot of engineering is physics. And I was like, (laughs) well, Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me, like, rethink some things. And I had found that with, like, my biology classes and my chem... All the other sciences... I had loved, like, putting together a little study group with, like, ten of my peers and, like, writing a practice test and, like, coming up with all these review games, and they loved it, too. Like, they kept wanting to review for the next test and the next test, and a lot of them said, like, man, you should be a teacher. Like, if only you were a teacher, I would have gotten this stuff, and I remember being, like, wait a minute, I think I love this. Like, that moment when they would go, like, oh, that makes sense. I, it, like, I don't know. It was, like, so it fulfilling. It you. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out to um, one of the professors who teaches biology, but she also is part of something called the UNC BEST program, which is mm-hmm. baccalaureate education in science and teaching um, at Carolina, and just talked with her kind of about my future and told her about some of my passions and pretty much what I just told you. And she was like, yeah, like, we got to get you in this program. I think you'd make a great teacher. 
Um, so I've switched from engineering to biology and I also enrolled in the UNC VEST program and did my student teaching and I loved it and yeah, I've loved teaching ever since. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And so how do you feel like, and maybe you didn't realize this at first when you first like switched, or, switched your major, but how do you feel like it kind of bleeds into your faith or your spiritual yeah. journey? Um, so I think I really look at my classroom and my job as like my mission field. So I'm not mm -hmm. a full-time missionary. I'm not called overseas. Um, but I, I have been called to be a teacher, and the, the way I know that, which I think a lot of times we talk about, like, the Lord's will in your life, and the Lord's calling, and that's kind of like Christianese mm -hmm. speak, like, how do I actually know what God is calling me to? Right. Because I don't hear him, and it's not like he puts up a billboard that says, Taylor, you should be a teacher. Yeah, right. Um, I, so I think it's two things. I think, one, do I enjoy it? Has he given me the desire? And two, has he equipped me? So can I do this? Do I have the skills? Am I good at it? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yes, both of those things are true. And so I think God's calling in my life is to be a teacher because of those two things. Um, but my mission is to seek and save the lost. And with the students that I work with, I do see that they're lost. And not just spiritually, but even just walking through the things that they walk through and being in the situations that they are in, like, I, you know, you said at the beginning, I teach at an alternative school, and so um, they just, you know, they come from a really rough background, they make really poor decisions, uh, mm -hmm. oftentimes because of trauma, mm -hmm. um, and the way that the trauma when they were children affects their, the decision-making centers of their brain mm -hmm. now, um, and so, you know, just, I just kind of see them giving in to this yeah, well, this is my life. Like, yeah. this is what I've saw, seen from my parents, my grandparents, all these generations. This is my life, and I'm ju I just kind of have to accept it. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, sharing with them the way, which I have had opportunities, which I think has been awesome, um, to share with them the way that the Lord kind of came into my life and gave me hope in situations mm -hmm. that seemed hopeless. Um, and a few of them actually have come to church with me, and just yeah. heard the gospel preached for mm -hmm. the first time and you know someone loved me enough to die for me like that doesn't make any sense like you know and so I think I think hearing that and just seeing this hope come alive um it's actually really neat because two of them graduated from Phoenix and they had been going to church with me and they just go on their own now like yeah. they they've graduated they've got a job they're in community college and like they're really involved with the college group there and just making friends. And I just think I see my faith as being the main reason why I do what I do. Yeah. Um, and the, really the foundation for, for everything in, in my life. Yeah. And we should tell our listeners, so an alternative school, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's essentially for kids that can't function in like a normal school environment. Yeah. yeah. And it's for lots of reasons. You know, it's some people, you know, sometimes people hear alternative school. Oh, that's a school for the bad kids. Right. And that's yeah. not, that's just not true. So it, you know, it could be, I mean, yeah, it could be that they were incarcerated and they got behind and now they're out and they need to catch up. And in right. a class of 30, they can't do that. Or teen moms and dads who, mm -hmm. when they get home, school is not their priority. It's putting a meal on the table 
And so, you know, my biggest class is 12. And so that really allows me to meet the needs of these kids that have really special and unique challenges that make them, I mean, they're really, they're assets. Yeah. The things that they've right. walked through are assets because they are learning how to be resilient and how to be strong. And, you know, not that other kids don't learn that, but if they are successful in a class of 30, then oftentimes those opportunities later in life, the doors are just going to be open. Yeah. And for these kids, like they're having to bust down these doors and really advocate for themselves. And yeah, it's a really neat place to work and a really cool thing to see happen. Yeah. And it's been so fascinating to hear you talk about um, the trauma, Mm -hmm. like uh, informed training that you have to do at Phoenix because that is. So I'm also a teacher, but I work at just like a regular 9 through 12 school. We may have, like, short little sessions Mm -hmm. on stuff that has to do with student trauma and how to deal with it, but we're not trained nearly to the same extent as y'all are. So can you explain, like, what that is and what that entails? Yeah, I I think I can explain it better by giving a few examples. Um, So the first thing we do when we first get, you you know, all the staff, the first thing on the very first teacher work day we talk about trauma and what it is and we learn about it from like a psychological standpoint like the act the brain like what has happened to these first of all what counts as trauma because a lot of people think oh and that's just like sexual abuse or physical abuse Mm. but there's a lot of things that Mm. count as trauma um one that's kind of unique that i like to talk about is historical trauma so Mm. things that happened years ago that are still affecting our opportunities now Mm. um, that counts as historical Mm -hmm. trauma, Uh, which I just think that one's fascinating because you would never think of that as like... So like systemic racism or discrimination could be even considered a form of trauma. Exactly. Yes, that's a great example. Um, And so we learn about what counts as trauma, what does trauma do to the brain, and then we get the opportunity to go through each child and our social workers and school psychologists tell us all of their background, like their history, what they've gone through, um, things that they're currently struggling with, things that they've, areas where they've seen victory in their lives. Um, And then we learn about what to do as a teacher when some of these behaviors come out that are results of the trauma. So not being able to de-escalate when you get frustrated about something. That's, That's one that almost every single one of our kids, one small thing will happen and it's like, boom like they are whoo like they're ready to go they're they're ready to fight right um and so as a teacher you know we will allow them to do things that they may not be able to do at another school so for example we have a punching bag out in the gym yeah and so on my walkie I can call somebody up whether it's the TA or school psychologist anybody and I can just say hey, like, would you mind coming to my classroom and taking so-and-so out to the gym? They go out there for 15 minutes, they go hard on that punching bag, and then they come back in class, and oftentimes, like, they're good to go. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think even Phoenix is unique to alternative schools because a mm-hmm. lot of times stuff like that would happen, and it's like, go to the principal's office, and then, okay, you're suspended, or you got ISS, right. or you can't come back to my class. And I think that is so much more damaging to the student Mm. because, like, that's the only way they know how to act. And if it's worked for them outside of school, well, then they think, 
that this is going to work for me right. in school. In school. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's almost like we're having to help them unlearn behaviors right. that are just ingrained in Right, them. or learn how to operate within an establishment, right, that's like a yeah. part of society. That's so much of what we do as teachers anyway. It's not the content. It's like, how do I function every day in society oh, yeah. and be a contributing member of that society? Exactly. You know, and if they learn some biology along the way, that's just a cherry on top. Right. Which brings me to my next question. So right now, we're in online schooling, and it's a lot harder to teach things like that, right? Like how to be um, a positively contributing member of society. What are some issues that you've seen your kids facing since all this, like since all this started? What are you worried about for Um, them? I think... Well, so I think there's been some positives and some negatives, which I'll focus on the negatives first since that's yeah. kind of what your question was. But I think they, um, it's, it's difficult enough to get them motivated when they are sitting in my classroom with the other students. It's even more so when they're sitting at home with their phone and their laptop and their video games and their families and their kids and everyone. And it's just, there's just so many distractions yeah. that... And they've admitted, which I think is really good, like, metacognitively for them to say, hey, I'm really struggling to get motivated. Like, I'm way behind on my work because I'm just not motivated. Um, and so I think that's been, that's been one of the biggest challenges to this online learning. Um, you know, and obviously, like, our lessons have totally changed. Yeah. They're not what they would have been. Yeah. And as an educator, that's kind of disheartening. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, I know that safety and, you know, behavioral and mental health, like, those are priorities above getting them, you know, getting them to learn. Yeah, we're sort of having to put, I think, content, like, making super engaging lessons and Mm -hmm. content almost on the back burner a little bit, just because we do have kids, and you especially, I feel like, have kids that are really vulnerable at home or that you know this is a tough time for everyone it could be they or their parents have a small business or a job and they got laid off or you know they know someone even with this virus or someone who's really immunocompromised or whatever yeah um and just as you said like all the distractions all the like like in access to um services that they would normally have like child care like all of that um, and that's got to be challenging for you, too, because you're mm-hmm. watching that on the sidelines and you don't get like there's only yeah. so much you can do about it. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, the things that we would, you know, school is not just a place they go to learn. It's the place they go and they get their breakfast and their lunch and they can talk to the school nurse. They can talk to the psychologist. They can talk to the social worker. I mean, all of their needs are met at school. Um and so I think that has been a struggle because, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, have Zoom or, you know, Google Hangout, you know, meetings with the kids and they will admit all of these things that normally if they would have said that in the classroom, I would say, hey, thank you for trusting me enough to share yeah. that with me. Mm-hmm. I am going to set up a meeting with our, you know, our, our substance abuse counselor so that you can sit down and really talk about the best way to handle the the information that you just told me Mm because I'm not an expert, but I love you and I care about you and I want the best for you. Whereas now I'm like, 
Thank you so much. I'm going to reach out to somebody who's going to reach out to somebody else who's right. then in the next two days going to reach out to <laughs> yeah. you. Make sure to pick up your phone. And if you don't, like, oh, well. You oh, know, well, it's yeah. Like, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's like these things we're still trying, but they're not as immediate as if they were in the school building. Right. Yeah. That's bad. episode of distancing diaries part of and also with y'all podcast thanks so much to eliza and taylor tune in to the next episode which will be part two of this part two episode as always check us out online at episdionc.org that's the episcopal diocese of north carolina and check us out online by downloading the Yeah NC app, Y-E-A-H-N-C app at wherever you get your apps from. Also, leave us a review if you think about it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast and drop us a line. Let us know how we're doing. Um, Send us a note. Let us know how you're doing. Thanks so much for listening.